Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You. I'm Ellen Trackman here with my sister, Jennifer White. Hi. So, hi. One thing that we know is that assisted reproductive technology doesn't always lead to having children. There's always probabilities involved. There's always things that that it can't fix or obstacles that it can't overcome. Or sometimes it's an unexplained issue that we can't get there. Um, And I know you came to a place at one point where you decided that that's okay. Like we're going to, yeah. Yeah. And I think I hadn't actually ever talked about this much out loud. And I'm actually really inspired by our guest today that is coming on is that we went through everything and decided we just couldn't bear anymore and that we were we were done dealing with fertility treatments and doctors and things like that and we had decided to be that we were going to be the cool aunt and uncle that was exactly how we phrased it you know like (laughs) that that was it we never said childless by choice we said we're going to be the cool aunt and uncle which you still and, get to be, but right. But that was what we decided was going to be our, our focus. Yeah. And then I, of course, after we had, you know, really taken that on, decided that then sometime after that, I actually became pregnant. So I am that jerk. Um, <laughs> and I acknowledge I am that jerk, <laughs> but we really had to do a lot of soul searching about that. And so it was, it, It was actually, I found it really relieving as we talked to our next guest to hear her that she also went through that process and that it wasn't just us that had to go through that process and have those thoughts too. So yeah, um, really excited. So without further ado, here's Brooke Kingston. A huge welcome to Brooke Kingston. Thanks for coming on and talking to us. Hello. Thank you for having me. So I have to start off at the front that I have a crazy stalker story for Brooke that (laughs) I had to tell her about. It wasn't even not weird at all. Yeah. um, (laughs) I went to an advocacy day a couple of years ago for Resolve and I listened to her speak and I was so excited and so impressed that I was like, afterwards, I was like, can I have a picture with you? And I, I have the picture still, and I probably now will have to put it up with the episode. And I am sitting there, I, I am <laughs> beaming from ear to ear, and Brooke like is giving like this side eye, like who is this crazy lady who's taking oh, yeah. a picture? We with definitely me? need to post that. <laughs> oh, if Brooke, if you approve, of course. <laughs> yes, of course. So, um, so yeah, so I am a total fangirl of Brooke, so I'm really glad that she agreed to come and talk to us. Yeah, I'm so excited. I love talking um, about advocacy. So. Yay! Well, so before we talk about advocacy, we always like to dive in and talk about people's story. So, sure, tell us, tell us about you. Do you like long walks on the beach? Oh, wait, or or let's talk about the fertility story. How's that? Various. <laughs> uh, I'm actually not much of a beach person, but um, <laughs> uh, I've been married since 2009 um, to my husband Dan, and we were diagnosed with infertility about a year and a half after we got married, we started trying after about six months. And so at that 12 month mark, uh, went to my doctor and, you know, got going with the testing. And I had been educating myself on fertility and fertility signs, um, you know, since we'd started trying. So I knew that when we got to 12 months, I knew exactly what to ask for from my doctor Mm. and how to get things done. What did you ask Um, for? I asked for, you know, basically baseline testing. They wow. test. Um, and you like knew what test to ask for? 
Yeah, it's, I mean, that's it's impressive pretty standard. For a non-medical professional, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fairly standard testing, and I'm I'm not going to remember which hormones are done when, so I apologize <laughs> for that. But there's testing done on day seven of your cycle, and then there's testing done on day 21, but that's the textbook day 21. What they really mean is seven days past ovulation. So if you're not a 14-day oh, ovulator, wow. you need to you know kind of be aware of that, um, or you could get some faulty test results. And then there's. And did, you, did um, you know at that point where you're like, I know what day ovulator I am? I did, yes. Wow. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. I. So I came off birth control around the time that we got married a couple months after. And it took a while for my cycles to, you know, kind of even out, even though um, birth control pills made me a regular 28 day yeah. um, cycle. My. Cycles got long at first, and then they finally kind of came back to about 28 days again. Mm. But I knew that I was ovulating closer to like day 18, 19. So I had a shorter, it's called the luteal phase, which is the time between your um, your ovulation and your menstrual cycle beginning. Hmm. Um, and so I knew that I needed to wait, you know, a little bit past, you know, day 21 to actually go and get that particular test. Wow. That's impressive. Uh, right? <laughs> I feel like most people, even when they're trying and looking, are like not that in tune with their body. So that's very impressive to me. Yeah. I I mean, it was a it was a really wild ride to like I read the book um Taking Charge of Your Fertility and it teaches you how to track fertility signs and take your temperature every morning and spot your ovulation and then you can confirm it with you know ovulation predictor kits so I I kind of geeked out on it a lot it was you know really kind of my geeky jam so (laughs) um so yeah I I was I felt really well versed and well prepared for that initial um meeting with my doctor and did Um, you already I mean I feel like you're so advanced on this did you already have kind of like a preconceived like I um not to do the pun there but idea of what the issue was Yeah. So like I mentioned, um, I was ovulating later in my cycle and that can be a luteal phase defect. So it means if it's too, too short, a fertilized egg is not going to be able to, you know, nest in and implant and start producing HCG, which is the pregnancy hormone to signal to your body not to menstruate. Mm. And so pregnancy could potentially, or conception could potentially occur but the body would expel it because it doesn't have enough hormone to signal, hey, we're pregnant, don't clean house. So so I knew that that was um, potentially something that could be an issue. Other than that, um, we didn't really have any other signs or symptoms of other things that were going on. So, And can I ask, just because I'm so impressed with all your knowledge, do you work in the medical field separately from this world or what what do you do otherwise? I'm an accountant. Ah, that does uh, actually come with it. She's type A. I was going to say, she's got to be super type A. <laughs> when I when I geek out on something, I go hard. So I love it. Okay. So, so you go to the doctor. You have some idea. You know what to ask for. You have some idea yep. what they're looking for. What happens? So in addition to those two hormonal blood tests that I had, I also did an HCG, which I'm not going to be able to say the name correctly, but essentially they put radioactive um, dye into the uterus and take um, x-ray images to ensure that 
the liquid or fluid is flowing through the fallopian tubes, it's to ensure that you don't have a blockage. And then the final test was my husband's um, sperm test. Um, and that was where we discovered that we were in some big trouble. Um, I, am, um, I have to say like all these articles now, it's becoming really big that um, like there's been a 50% decline in sperm worldwide in the last like 50 years. So wow. I don't know if he was part of that, but it's um, the numbers are like absolutely shocking. And it's like talking about the, you know, the, the end of the human race, basically from the sperm count falling so much. Wow. Yeah. No, I, I mean, did the, not there that, was like but... another one today on the guardian that was sent to me. So I've just been seeing all these different, I mean, I wrote on it too, but there's been all these different articles about it. Wow. Yeah. Uh, no, I did not know that. And we're not really sure. So in addition to his sperm count, so when they do um, a sperm analysis, they're looking at the count of how many sperm they're looking at the motility. Are they moving? And then they're also looking at morphology. So one thing that we don't really realize, because we all see these pictures of like a sperm breaking into an egg and they're strong and they can do it on their own, is <laughs> the testes are not very efficient necessarily at making high quality sperm. They're pumping out a lot of sperm and they're not all going to be winners. Wait, can I can I do a quick quiz here on Jen? Because I feel like, didn't oh. we do a quiz on sperm the other day? And I was oh, like, it was like oh, what we did. percentage you asked me and I of forgot. sperm has normal morphology? Do you remember? Uh, I don't, but it was like shocking. It was shockingly small. low. Do you, it, Brooke, do you yeah. know the answer? I think it was like 1%. It was something really small. Well, they look for like 4%, I think. Okay. Is right. like kind of normal. We had zero. Still shockingly low. Wow. Yeah, still zero, shockingly you had, low. Wow, zero. You had 0%, not even measurable. Yeah, huh? <laughs> yeah we had 0%. Um, we didn't have many sperm at all. Um, you know, kind of numbers and quality wise, we were kind of not really that far off from working with azospermia, which is the absence of sperm. Like we, wow. we didn't have a lot to work with. And um, wow. for those who don't know, for an IUI, they generally want to have, I believe it's 10 million sperm post-wash, yeah. which is after they do whatever it is that they do yeah. before they um, put it into the uterus. And we were nowhere near that. Wow. Um, so our first appointment with the reproductive endocrinologist was not really a surprise for me because I kind of knew like what they would need and what they would want, but yeah. it was pretty devastating to hear that, you know, our only option really was IVF. And prior to going to that appointment, we had talked about what we were willing to do. And we honestly were only really open to like three cycles of IUI. Um, wow. IVF was not something that at the time, was feasible for us. Um, is that just and a huge financial obstacle? It is a huge financial obstacle. And we're honestly not very, like, as a couple, we're not very, like, risky people. So yeah. even if we had the money, the thought of giving someone $15,000 for a chance at a yeah. pregnancy just doesn't really track with our, you know, our personalities and the way that we do things. Right. So, so it was pretty tough to hear. So, we, do, you mind, do you mind if I ask, do, do they know why your husband didn't have sperm? Sorry, I'm so like into like all these articles now where it's like plastics and chemicals. Did they have any thoughts about it? Yeah, so we do. He was also around the same time diagnosed with low testosterone. Okay. And so that could be definitely a big part of it. So there are some 
ways to increase sperm count. Believe it or not, Clomid, which is a follicle-stimulating hormone, can help with sperm production. However, if you're just producing more bad swimmers or more low-quality sperm, it's not really super helpful. Yeah. And the treatment for low testosterone is to replace that testosterone with synthetic, um, you know, injectables, basically. And unfortunately, when that happens... The testes say, oh, we've got plenty of testosterone. We can stop making our own. And generally, sperm counts fall. So we were kind of at an impasse between, you know, treating his low testosterone, which was making him feel, you know, kind of crappy. It comes with side effects. And realizing that the therapy or the treatment for that was going to be fully detrimental to, you know, his fertility. So. We took some time and, you know, tried to make some lifestyle changes. They recommend things like, you know, cutting alcohol, eating better, exercising, stuff like that. Um, And did another sperm test. I believe it was six months later, maybe nine months. And we didn't have any significant changes. So it was kind of um, since we weren't open to IVF and we didn't have the numbers that would make IUI really even... um, feasible we kind of felt like the choice had been made somewhat for us but during that time that we were you know making lifestyle changes I started looking into resolve I went to support groups um I started reading about you know kind of different options and how people resolve their infertility and I came across a book called sweet grapes by a couple named Jean and Michael Carter and they talk extensively about their experience with infertility and how they came to choose to be a family of two. Yeah. And as I was reading it, it was answering a lot of my questions and my fears. Like, um, I think we all have this conception that if you have children, you have someone who will take care of you later in life. And yeah, you know, they pointed out that like, that's not necessarily true. (laughs) (laughs) You could have children, but they might be, you know, taking care of their own families or, you know, family dynamics and relationships can be weird. And, you know, yeah. you might not end up with someone who's going to take care of you. Or your child might be special needs. And then you yeah. have, still have to take care of your child far after. Yeah. There are a whole host of reasons why, depending on offspring for your later in life <laughs> care is not a good idea. Um, And so it just made me feel like this is something that I could be okay with. So while we kind of left that door open for, you know, a spontaneous pregnancy, which at that point felt like it would be a miracle. I was getting myself kind of wrapped around the idea of potentially being a family of two. And thankfully Dan is incredibly, incredibly supportive of literally everything I do. Um, And so he was just kind of like, I mean, he was obviously hurt and it's a, you know, a blow to an ego. Yeah, sure. Um, But he was basically like, whatever, you know, you decide you know, we'll, we'll go with it, but we were very much on the same page. And I feel very, very fortunate about that. A lot of couples struggle with making decisions about how to move forward at just about every aspect of an infertility experience. Can I ask, which I, they're probably insensitive. I'm sorry, but like the natural questions that come to people are like, did you guys think about adoption and foster care? There's other options. Yeah. I think anytime a couple is experiencing infertility, we look at all of those different options We, neither of us felt called to adopt at the time. Um, Maybe somewhat ironically in the last couple of years, we've thought about doing like an older child foster. Yeah. Um, But for us, 
it it didn't feel any more um well you're never gonna get anything certain with like trying to build a family i guess for sure but it, it didn't feel any more like a good path for us and we didn't feel called to adopt and we both yeah. kind of felt like that should be something that ideally we would have been open to before trying to conceive so right. Sure. That just didn't feel like the right choice for us. Can I ask what other kind of concerns did you feel were answered by this book or otherwise that you were kind of getting over emotionally or mentally? Yeah, it was just, it was brutally honest about the cycle of grief and, you know, understanding that grief is not linear and there are going to be really bad days and there are going to be triggers. And um, one thing that resonated with me was, they talked about making sure that your like financial stuff is in order. You know, if um, you know, just making doing anything that you can do to ensure that you will feel secure later in life. And that really resonated with me to, you know, just make sure that we cleaned house and we're on the same page. Especially as an accountant, right? But that's yeah. very interesting. <laughs> yes, exactly. So um, and then another thing they talked about was, you know, kind of creating your closure and your peace. And so they went on a vacation, um, which we did not do at the time. Um, but they went on a vacation and that was kind of their, okay, this is the end. And the other thing that seems really counterintuitive that was really helpful for me was Jean actually got an IUD. And she did that because she needed to know what life was going to look like. She needed to get off of the roller coaster of thinking, well, maybe, just maybe, just maybe um, this month. Yeah. yeah, just maybe, maybe even the miracle happened, something like that. And so yeah. that really resonated with me. And so about a year after our initial diagnosis, I also got an IUD and yeah. it was just as helpful as I hoped it would be wow. in stopping that crazy cycle for me and just making me feel secure in knowing that, okay, we have shut this door and I don't have to worry about thinking and hoping and, you know, this crazy hope cycle I go through every month. So yeah, right. I think those were the big points that, you know, resonated for me and helped me begin to heal more and bring peace to, you know, our decision. It's so interesting because it's counterintuitive, but also makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially if you've been through, I mean, which so many of us who have suffered from infertility have been through that every month hope cycle. That even mm-hmm. though you're like, even though I know we didn't even do anything this month, maybe, maybe this month, the miracle happened, right? you know, yeah. like, you know, it's just like, you can't stop waiting for that. Like the, maybe because my cycle is one day late. It, it, it's like, yeah, no, no, it's just late because I was stressed, you know, it has nothing to do with anything else, but you, you do have, you get on the crazy train every month. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I needed off the crazy train and <laughs> <laughs> getting my IUD did that for me. So awesome. that was, so, that was really helpful. You had mentioned you started going to resolve groups all the yeah. way back then. It, I mean, and from what we know, obviously I've, I've spoiled that fact that you're still involved in resolve. How did that <laughs> start to morph? I mean, for you, because I mean, it's been a, a lot of years of your involvement. Yeah. So you're going to see a pattern in my involvement with resolve. When I do something, I kind of go all in. Um, I went to my first resolve support group in would have been October of 2011. And at the very first meeting, it's a peer led support group. So it's another person, you know, struggling with infertility who is leading the conversation. 
she mentioned that she was going to be moving and they needed to find someone to take over the group and possibly not the best idea uh in hindsight i was like sure i can do this this seems easy you just you know sit down at panera bread and you know talk about infertility and that's really essentially what it was so you know i she put me in touch with resolve and i got um you know some more information about what it entailed and i was like sure i can do that um so i took over the peer-led support group and i did that for like three or four years i think before i you know, decided like, ah, this is not, you know, the right thing for me right now. It was, we had moved past trying to conceive or build our family and, you know, pretty much everyone in the group was still in that stage. And so it just didn't feel like the right place for me anymore. Um, And then in 2000, I think it was probably 2012, um, I heard about the Resolve Walk of Hope, which is, um, a series of fundraisers that they do all over the country in various cities. And um, I volunteered with the Walk of Hope. I think it was in April. It's usually in the spring here in Arizona. I was going to ask if uh, you had one locally. Yes. Yep. There was one in Phoenix. It used to be in Scottsdale. Um, I call it the late great <laughs> Arizona Walk of Hope because <laughs> unfortunately they no longer do it. Uh, and Resolve right. has actually rolled out um, a virtual Walk of Hope. Um, models. So pretty much anyone can, you know, organize a walk of hope and bring people together virtually. Um, We were huge advocates of the Colorado version. So got it. We loved and which actually stemmed from yours in Arizona, because the founder of the Colorado walk of hope went to the Arizona one and was like, I love this. Why don't we have one in Colorado? And so she, she brought it. So, so you guys were doing great. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We're inspiring. Well, good. That's good to hear. So, um, Then the next year, I think I was co-chair or chair, and then I became the chair of the Arizona Walk of Hope. So um, I think the last one, I believe, was in 2015. Um, And in 2013, there was a bill in the state legislature that involved personhood legislation and you're not familiar essentially personhood legislation gives legal rights to embryos and that becomes all sorts of problematic when you're talking about um, infertility and creating embryos that unfortunately part of the IVF process is lost embryos um, right and so doctors aren't going to practice in a state where they can be held accountable for essentially legal murder of embryos when those embryos are lost which is a normal part of the process. So um, we were very involved in the, you know, grassroots efforts of reaching out to lawmakers and, you know, putting a stop to that bill. And we were successful. And during that time, I also heard about the Federal Advocacy Day that Resolve does um, in Washington, D.C. every year. Unfortunately, in 2013, it was too late for me to get my stuff together to go that year. But I made a promise to myself that I was going to go in 2014. And I you know, kind of put it out there to some groups that I was in online, um, essentially sprung from the bump and we moved to Facebook and we had, you know, a really strong bond. There were about 75 of us in that group at the time. And I put it out there that I was going to go. And one of the women that I connected with because we had similar diagnoses was like, I live in Virginia. You can come stay with me and I'll go with you. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Kind of like, okay, that sounds all right. So being the crazy person that I am, 
I booked um, flights for to stay with her for an entire week in Virginia. <laughs> and we never were gonna, met. <laughs> never met. No, we had texted at that point, I think, and maybe had a phone conversation. I can't quite remember. Um, long story short, she is now my absolute best friend and we oh. are thick as <laughs> thieves and advocacy and the Capitol and, you know, everything surrounding, you know, advocacy and um, family building is, you know, a, a big part of our bond. So um, now my week with her is, you know, our vacation and we go to the spa and we go out and eat a lot of Mediterranean food and, you know, advocacy day is just, you know, a thing that brings us together. And unfortunately last year, because of um, COVID advocacy day was virtual. So I advocated from Arizona and she advocated from um, Virginia. So hopefully um, in 2022, we will be back to a in-person format for advocacy day and we'll get to advocate together again. Right. Right. Awesome. So, Okay, so you you started talking about going to Advocacy Day, but then it gets more involved than that, right? You you went to your first one. So talk about your first experience. Yeah. So besides meeting meeting her, talk about how that first experience went. Um looking back, it's such a mix of emotions. Uh, we had no idea what we were like getting into. Um I think I remember we were on like a, a training call and they were you know, talking to us about, you know, all the things that we were going to be talking about and saying, and, you know, it's, it's very regimented because, um, you know, when you're going as an advocate, you're representing resolve. And so you you want to obviously make a really good impression. Um, and I think we just had no idea what we were getting into. Um, but that first day, so the, the day of advocacy day starts with, um, a training. Um, it's usually really early in the morning, like seven 30, um, and there's, they'll talk about the bills that we're going to go and talk about, um, and kind of the course of how your meetings will go, introducing yourself, telling a little bit of your story, talking about the various bills that you want them to support or not support, if that's the case, um, you know, and there's leave behinds. And so they go through the course of how your meetings will go. Um, and so that's when I think I started to get like really anxious about like, what have I gotten myself into? Um, but I was there in Arizona with, um, a resolve board member and then actually a doctor, um, one of the reproductive endocrinologists from the Phoenix area and his wife were there, um, that first year. So I at least was not completely by myself. Um, and by the way, resolve will never send a new person to a meeting by themselves anyway. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, but there, I think what I remember most is uh, the conversations I had, I don't necessarily remember, except for my congressman's uh, staffer was very, very visibly pregnant. And so that kind of like shook me a little bit. Wow. Um, but for the most part, I don't remember the conversations that we had. I just remember the feeling of being so empowered um, by turning my pain into something positive. Um, and you might get some ugly cry voice here (laughs) Um, because it's still, I mean, it still just amazes me. Um, and walking through the, you're not in necessarily in the Capitol building under the dome itself, um, unless you're crossing between the Senate side and the house side. So the Senate offices Mm -hmm. on one side of the Capitol and the house of representative offices are on the other. Mm -hmm. And at some point you will have to go between them, um, because you're meeting with your two senators and your congressman, but 
just being in those buildings with all the history and your state flags and seeing, um, we found um, John F. Kennedy's office at one point, and it's just such a like surreal experience that not many people have that it just, I was hooked from day one. So mm -hmm. it, it was, it was just such a powerful day. And I remember being done at the end of the day and just wanting to tell everyone about how amazing it was and how much it ended up being so much fun and meeting other people. And it's just, it's like my favorite day of the year, honestly. Wow. Did you find your legislators receptive or their staff receptive or sometimes were you up against people who are clearly not? On your side? <laughs> um, so I can't even remember. Okay. So my senators would have been John McCain and Jeff Flake, um, who've both moved on. Um, they were both kind of receptive. They both have, you know, they're both very family centric um, senators yeah. Um, obviously, John McCain has a large mixed and blended family and, you know, adoption is in there as well. Um, Jeff Flake, I believe, is you know a Mormon and they're very family centric and very, you know, large family, family building. So it felt like very good, um, quote unquote, targets to be on board with what we wanted. Um, but they are also somewhat conservative. And so they were not necessarily on board with some of the... Um, biological family building, but they were very open to our asks um, regarding adoption um, and refundability of the adoption tax credit. And then my congressman, I live in the second most conservative district in Arizona, mm -hmm. and um, they were not receptive <laughs> so, oh, no. to what we wanted. I, I mean, Asking for adoption is always great. And you're always going to get, I think, probably from, you know, more conservative lawmakers, you're always going to get more support around adoption than you are, you know, with IVF and some of the biological family building stuff. But yeah. then you're also asking for a tax credit. And so that's where it gets a little bit, you know, kind of tricky uh, with getting some of their support. So, yeah. um, I mean, even when they're not receptive or on your side, were they like kind about it or how, how did it yeah. go? Absolutely. So the first thing that people don't realize um, is that we're not meeting with um, the senators or congressmen necessarily. It's usually going to be their staff member, usually their legislative director or their staff person who um, looks into whatever issue it is that we're talking about. So it might be sure. veterans affairs if we're talking about a veterans bill or, you know, um, their tax and financial um, advisor. And, so, and what was surprising to me was how young they are. Yeah. Really? <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> so yes. young. I'm always like, does your mom know you're no, here? Right? <laughs> <laughs> no. wow. Yes, they're they're really young. Um, and that can make that made it feel um like they're not gonna have any idea what we're talking about. But the important things to remember are this might be the first time that these folks are ever hearing about infertility and how it impacts constituents and how many constituents it impacts. And so even if they're not receptive to the legislation that you want them to support, raising awareness about infertility is going to put that seed in their minds that, you know, this is something that impacts my constituents. Um, and a lot of them, you know, one in eight people in America. So it's a lot of their folks that they're, you know, making decisions right. for. 
Um, but it was also surprising that almost at least once every year in my meetings, one of the staffers will have a story about someone in their family or, you know, their own parent or their siblings or friends who are struggling with infertility or who have struggled with infertility. So you can't necessarily just be like, oh, they're young. They don't have any idea because, because it is so pervasive, but we're not necessarily talking about it or thinking about it. When you mention it, they're like, oh yeah, I do know something about this. So even if they're not going to support the bill, getting that information out to them and asking them in the future, you know, even if you don't support these things in the future, supporting family building initiatives is important to me as your constituent. So there's always something positive that comes out of meeting with them. Yeah. Yeah. So you went to your first advocacy day mm -hmm. and then, cause you like to jump in hog, <laughs> what then happened next? So then the next year I volunteered as a state captain, which, um, in the structure of Resolves Advocacy Day, each state has, you know, kind of a point person who um, organizes the delegation from that state and is the point person for Resolve. So they're not sending information out to everyone. They're just sending it to the state captains and the state captains, you know, spread it to their delegation. So I was kind of in charge of, you know, deciding um, once we knew what the bills were, for instance, um, one of the people in the Arizona delegation that year had was a mom via IVF. Um, so, you know, she's the best one to talk about the bill that has to do with IVF. Or um, if you've got someone who's military, um, you know, we're always talking about um, access for injured veterans. Um, so that's and, important. And for to the know. rest of us who aren't in injured as well. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and so it's just, you know, it's just a, it's a kind of low level sort of volunteer kind of role. And then I think 2000, I did that for a couple of years and, you know, kind of helped with some, because I'm a nerd and I'm an accountant, I kind of helped with some data type stuff for a couple of years. And then in 2018, I was the chair of advocacy day and Ooh. I was, it was kind of like a, and that's huge. I mean, how many people are huge. doing this? Yeah. Um, generally we have about 250 participants. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so I was chair in 2018 and then in 2019, there's kind of a succession of, um, you know, your first year, you're kind of learning from the previous chair and then you're kind of on your own. And then in 2020, I was, you know, kind of an advisor, um, to the new, there were co-chairs in 2020. So I kind of was there to support them and advise them. Wow. Yeah, so kind of jumped in sort of quickly. Um, and was that like a, just a tiny time commitment or? No, I... <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so the chair of Advocacy Day is generally in charge of subcommittees. So, you know, there's a subcommittee on training. There's a subcommittee um, that is in charge of the state captains that I mentioned. I'm not going to remember them all. Obviously, we have a social media yeah. committee because we got to get the word out. You know, they're organizing um, Facebook posts and things like thunderclaps that we did one year. Um, so I it was basically started out as biweekly meetings. And then as we got closer to the event, it was weekly meetings um, that were usually about an hour. 
Um, and you're talking about organizing people from all over the country. So yeah. um, when you're talking about trying to get 10 people together once a week, it mm-hmm. can be a bit of a challenge, but um, I, I, I had a lot of fun with it. So yeah. um, for those who might be listening and be like, Oh, that's interesting. Um, should I get involved? How do I get involved? What would you say? Yes, absolutely. If you go to, yes, everyone should get involved. Yes, Um, I agree. (laughs) Yeah, wholeheartedly. Um, If you go to Resolve's website, um, it's resolve.org. And then I think it's slash advocacy day maybe, but it's right on their front page on resolve.org. They have a, you know, get involved type dropdown, I believe. There is an advocacy day page um, that goes to registration. So, Usually when we're in, you know, in-person advocacy days in Washington, D.C., I believe there's like a small fee of like $10 for um, first year participants. And then after your first year, it's a free event, Um, but it's totally worth it, I promise. Um, And it'll give you information about when the event is. Um, At this point in the legislative cycle, because we have a new Congress, I don't think we have any of the bills identified yet that we're going to be advocating for. I was going to ask if we if you had an idea for this year what the push was for. Yeah. um, Generally, there's we're always asking for refundability of the adoption tax credit. Um, The adoption tax credit was, um, I believe, made permanent. I feel rusty talking about this now. but we need it to be refundable, which means that even if you don't have a tax liability, so if you're a low or middle income family and you don't have a tax liability, um, it doesn't help you to get the credit because it's right. you're not you know owing anything. So we want it to be refundable so that they get that money no matter what. Um, if you're adopting, and it includes if you're adopting out of foster care. So you know a lot of folks think, well, foster care adoption is fairly cheap. Um, and yes, that is often true. It's um, a much lower cost way to adopt, but a lot of families have, you know, some upfront costs like um, getting their homes ready, um, you know, and taking classes um, to foster and adopt. So it covers some of those costs, even if they're not, you know, going towards large adoption fees. Um, and sorry, go ahead. Oh, and this year, for those who want to be involved, you can do it from the comfort of your own home, right? <laughs> from your couch. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. So, I... Well, it sounds amazing to go to DC, walk the halls, get to see people in person. There is yeah. the other slight advantage of a COVID <laughs> resolve advocacy day of not having to go anywhere. Yes, and I advocated in 2020 from my kitchen table and my mom joined me. Oh, um, that's Yeah, nice. it was really awesome. She was actually planning to go to D.C. with me and then obviously oh. COVID happened and so we had to change that plan. But my mom lives in my hometown about two hours away and so she drove up um, with me the night before um, and stayed with me and she advocated with me and she, you know, got on the phone with senators and my representative and, you know, talked about me and how it impacts her as, you know, my mom. (laughs) Um, And it was absolutely amazing. And, you know, Resolve really tried to make it feel very much like, you know, we were still kind of there together. So there were, you know, happy hours, virtual happy hours at the end of the day, and there were check-ins, you know, midday. And um, yeah, there, we weren't in DC, but it still felt very much like a community. Yeah. And I think one of the things that you just said is really kind of hits the nail on the head is that even if you personally aren't the one who went through infertility, there are so, 
every person, I, I, I dare a person, any person to look around and say that I don't know anybody who's been affected by infertility or in some way that these issues don't affect me. Yeah. And, and so I think it's one of the things that anyone can come and advocate about these issues because everyone has a very valued and valid perspective to be part of advocacy day. Yeah. Personal stories are always going to make a big impact. You know, that's what these staffers want is to hear how their constituents are personally impacted. But, you know, it's also important to have people like they love to have the perspective of reproductive endocrinologists and, you know, just regular everyday people who are saying this doesn't impact me, but it impacts someone I love and care for. And that's really powerful too. to, you know, to take the time for an issue that doesn't necessarily even impact you personally and still care about it enough to, you know, bring this issue to their attention, I think is really important. So yeah, it's advocacy for family building is not just for infertile folks. It's for, you know, our parents. Um, you know, there are a lot of families who use um, reproductive endocrinology to build their families. So, you know, same sex couples, um, folks who are pursuing single parenthood, cancer survivors who have gone through treatment and now have diminished fertility. You know, there are a whole host of people and families who use reproductive endocrinology and assisted reproductive technology to build their families outside of just the infertility community. Ah, oh, yes. That means everybody should join us for Advocacy Day, right? That's, that's, that is my, my yes. kitchen plea, right? Everyone should join us. <laughs> Everyone is welcome. Yes. The more voices, the better. We want to be able to go to every single state and every single district. So we're, we're not quite there yet. We did get every state last year, thankfully, um, you know, in part to being virtual. Um, but we're still working on getting to see, you know, someone meeting with every single congressman. And I think this year their goal is to have at least 450 people attend. Is it? Oh, gosh. Well, yes. that, would, that would be really exciting. Yes. It's, so that, it's absolutely that was what doable. I heard the other day. So I'm hopeful. <laughs> yeah, I am, too. It, you know, um, the virtual and, environment makes it so much easier for people to participate. So and for those of out there listening, if you need incentive to talk to any of the three of us who are on here. So I am the state captain for New Mexico. Um, and Brooke, I know you'll be part of Arizona. I don't know if you're this, you're the state captain for Arizona, right? This year? Yes. Yeah. And then Ellen, I know is on the Colorado, um, a, a team that is going. So, um, yes, yeah, so you can talk to any of the three of us. It gives you a great way to <laughs> reach out yes. in those States, but in all the other States, I I've met most of the state captains. They're all incredible. So it's, you, you should go anyone, yeah. everyone who's listening should go. Yes. Our state captains are really amazing. They're, you know, just, they're great advocates and experienced advocates, but they're also extremely enthusiastic about bringing people together and organizing and, you know, creating a strong message for, you know, their delegation. So yes. state advocates are awesome. I know. I'm so excited. I'm like, I, I could just sit here and go like, I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited. You know? yeah. But um, we have, Probably nobody wants to listen to me say that over and over again. So, um, I do. Thank you. Uh, well, yay, good. We'll just sit here and do it to, for each other. <laughs> but for now, thank you for, for sharing your story and talking about your advocacy journey. And we really appreciate your openness that I people, your journey is one that 
people don't generally talk about it, at least as openly. And I mean, infertility is something that's not very talked about openly anyway. And then to talk about making the choice to to not have a child is something that I I know will resonate with a lot of people out there. So I really yeah. appreciate your openness. Yeah, I, I'm always happy to talk about it. Um, if anyone is listening and wants to reach out to me, you can actually email me at brooke, B-R-O-O-K-E dot resolve, like the organization at gmail.com. I'm always open to sharing what I've been through and, you know, connecting you with someone who might be able to help you make decisions. But if you just need someone to listen, I'm, I'm always open to that. So. Perfect. And if, if somebody missed that and they need to connect through ours and they say, Hey, I'm trying to reach Brooke, we, we would be happy to also make sure that we forward any of those through our website as well. Great. So thank you, Brooke. We really appreciate you. Thank you. And I I look forward to advocating with you both this year. Yay! Yay! Thank you to Brooke Kingston for being such an inspiration and for really putting yourself out there to to share a difficult decision for those who also might be thinking about it and to to offer her her personal email and to be a personal connection and resource for those who might want to connect with her personally. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yes. And also I'm going to say what we said like 25 times at the end there is we were totally fangirling about it, but everybody should go to resolve advocacy day if you can, especially this year, because it is virtual. Uh, it really is there. There are, unless you have a major plan on that exact one day, there, there are very few reasons that you, you can't attend, you know, it's <laughs> going virtual has taken down a lot of the barriers of travel and cost and, yeah. and things like that, that are there for the, cause I completely understand it's can be difficult to travel to Washington DC and take some time and things like that on, on an in-person year. But this year, everyone can be part. So other things that everyone can be part of is leaving us a review, of course. <laughs> so you can And all that money that you save from going in person to Washington, D.C., you can now <gasps> use on um, sperm wearing headphone swag yes. for I Want to Put a Baby in You merch. Yes. Everyone needs a T-shirt or a phone case that says that or even a coffee mug. Or I think joggers. On- Yes. Tank tops. Definitely. Yeah, no, definitely. But you should, everybody should go check that out and and just use that money that you saved. Either that, or you should also (laughs) potentially make a a donation to resolve. Even better. That that would also be very good. (laughs) I I think that might be a better actual pitch. Maybe more meaningful. One of each. I know. know. (laughs) Right. Um, But if you do want to reach out to us, I mean, you know, reach out to Brooke too, but to us, you can give us a call at 303 9999 oh wow 303-997-1903 i've said that number so many times i added extra nines so mm. um but thank you as always to everyone who is listening to our team who makes us sound incredible so to amanda to tyler and of course to chris at work at bird studios and we will talk to you again soon bye